And just before we read uh, Psalm 90 this morning, it was mentioned that today was the last uh, Sunday for Sunday school until the fall. And so I, I trust that uh, you are uh, thankful. For those of you who have kids in the Children's Sunday School program, I trust that you're thankful for the teachers who spend all that time uh, teaching and preparing and uh, pouring into your children. And I think it would not be inappropriate as, as a way of expressing our gratitude to God, but recognizing that God gives us uh, human beings uh, with gifts and whatnot. If we can just maybe just show our appreciation for our Sunday School teacher, I think that'd be appropriate. And they're all signed up for next year because they didn't read the fine print in their contract. So we're good. Full slate. All set. Lifetime. Lifetime teachers. Well, that's how you can tell who's called to it too, right? They, they want to do it. Psalm 90. This is the word of God. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years, or 80, if our strength endures. Yet, the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass, and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord. How long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. For as many years as we have seen trouble, may your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. This morning, uh, as we pray, we're going to pray just in a, just in a special way that uh, the children, for all the things that they were taught uh, this year, that those things will really sink into their hearts, uh, that God's truth that was uh, taught to them 
uh, will uh, take deep root uh, in their hearts and in their minds, and that they will see great fruit uh, in the next generation uh, for the time and effort that was spent uh, in teaching the children the Word of God. So please join with me uh, as we pray. Father, in, in this passage, we, we recognize that you are the Lord who is the dwelling place for your people through all generations. And we also see that we are called, we, we ought to desire for your works to be made known to the next generation, for your splendor to be on the children. And so we pray that you will do that, Lord. We pray that not because we are worthy or gifted, uh, but because you are a great God who deserves to be worshipped, uh, we pray that everything that was taught uh, this year to the children, uh, everything that was true, will take root deep in their hearts. Father, we pray that you will transform lives on the basis of your truth and on the basis of your word. Also pray, Lord, that you will enable us as adults to be mindful of children to speak words in season, but also to be good examples, uh, to demonstrate virtue, uh, to be kind and compassionate and loving. Father, I pray that as a community, you will make us a place that is, in fact, characterized by unity and love. I pray that you will make us a place that's characterized by wisdom and knowledge and insight, holiness and the fear that is due you. Father, I pray that you will uh, make us a place, make us a people, rather, uh, who image you well, not merely in natural constitution, but also in moral and spiritual character. I pray that you will enable us, as your children, to reflect you, our Father, in a way which is uh, challenging and compelling and also uh, winsomely attractive to those who do not know you. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. For we ask it in Jesus' name and trust that our work is for his sake. Amen. So this Psalm, uh, Psalm 90, uh, really locates our life in God. It, it takes our life, our lifespan, our priorities, and it forces us to put ourselves, our fears, our hopes, our dreams, our work, everything about us needs to be located in a proper framework, and that framework is the everlasting God. The emphasis in the first verse falls on the word you. Lord, you. You are the dwelling place. You are the one that we live in. You are the oasis in the desert throughout all generations. You are our home. You are the one in which we find life, shelter, security, and living. But it's not only for us. And one of the things that the Bible does, which is very helpful uh, as a cultural corrective to us today, is that the Bible is continually calling us to remember that what God is doing in this world is not just about us as individuals. I mean, it is that. 
God is, intention, is intensely interested in every individual life, in every single person. Uh, the world might not be, but God is. God actually very much cares about the circumstances of your life. But God isn't just confirming you, if you're anything like me, in your natural tendency to think that the whole universe revolves around you. God isn't coming along to you and saying, listen, you're so important that you're the focus of all that I'm doing. He comes along to you and he says, yes, you are special to me. Yes, I have created you. Yes, I love you. Yes, I'm concerned with your life. But don't forget, if I'm your dwelling place, I'm no more your dwelling place than I was the dwelling place of all previous generations of my children. And I'm also concerned with every subsequent generation of my children. And so what we have is we have a God who allows us to have present meaning precisely because we have to take our eyes off ourselves. And we get to look at what God has done in the past and what is God is going to do in the future. Before the mountains were born, before you brought forth the whole world, before you began to create from everlasting to everlasting, that is, before there was creation, you were still God. You still existed. Uh, you still were holy, holy, holy. You still were the source of all beauty and goodness and, and love. Uh, infinitely satisfied in his uh, sort of inter-Trinitarian relationships, Father, Son, and Spirit, not needing us to be affirmed, not needing us to experience relationship, not needing us to be loved or to express love. As a Trinity, God has eternally, even apart from creation, been infinitely satisfied and perfectly fulfilled and holy, holy, holy. And yet he has brought forth a world. He has created. He is not created because of any deficiency in him. He has created because he is so, it's almost, a, we, we struggle with, with how, to, how to express it. I don't, I don't have the words really, so I'm going to coin a really ugly phrase. Uh, he, he sort of, he, he overflows because of his ultra-sufficiency. You know, it's not insufficiency. He has almost too much of it. You know, and so it overflows, it, it spills out. And so he decides that he will create beings who have, the, who have the potential to actually participate in him. He creates beings so that there are beings who can appreciate what it is to know God. Of whom and of which there is absolutely nothing better uh, that is logically possible. He is the perfect being. To have a relationship with God is eternally and infinitely valuable in ways that we can't possibly imagine. And so God brings forth a world so that there are other beings who can actually, in small measure, enter into the wonder and beauty and awesome honor it is to simply be aware of the existence of the Creator God. The everlasting nature of God is essential if we're going to understand how we're supposed to live our lives in the present. So, so we'll come back to that, but just, just sink that into your mind just for now. Because God is eternal, from everlasting to everlasting. But verse 3 makes it very clear that we are not. 
You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. This is simply the fulfillment of the consequences of sin that God had said would take place uh, in Genesis 2, then fulfilled in Genesis 3. The day, of you, the day that you eat of it, you shall die. You shall revert back to dust. From dust you have been taken, to dust you will return. And so this is the reality of the human condition, that we are mortals. We will return to dust. Interestingly enough, you can't possibly know how to live your life now unless you know that that's true. I mean deeply know that that's true. Like, actually come to accept that that is true. Uh, mortality is an inescapable fact of life. And if you ignore that inescapable fact, you will be paralyzed in terms of living life properly because you won't understand the end of life. So you just need to get this very straight. You will return to dust one day. That is inevitably where you are tracking towards. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by or like a watch in the night. Now, clearly this isn't mathematical because a day and a watch in the night is not the same unit of time. Okay? So a thousand years in God's sight can't be just like a day because a day isn't just like a watch in the night. Now, of course, Peter in Second Peter will turn this around, too, and say, for a thousand years in your sight are like a day, and a day is like a thousand years. What he's saying is the experience that God has of time is simply utterly different from the way we experience time. Now, there are long debates in philosophy that you have read and appreciated about the difference between being everlasting, that is persisting through all moments of time, and being eternal, that is being outside of time. We won't get into all of that now. Needless, regardless of that, let's just say this. The experience of God with time or outside of time, his reference point to temporality is obviously utterly different from our own. So what seems like a long time to us is nothing to God. Whereas God can inhabit a moment of time for eternity. God's whole perception of time is utterly distinct from our own. We can't imagine what God's perception of time is like precisely because we're so temporal, because we're so submerged in the space-time universe that we're in. We can't imagine what it's like to actually experience time in a different way. But even for us, we know what it's like subjectively to experience time in slightly different ways. You know, uh, we even have expressions like this. Uh, time flies when you're having fun. Right? So there are certain times when it seems like time is just disappearing. It's just going very, very rapidly. There are other times when time is just absolutely dragging. The minutes are hours. The hours are days. It's going on and on and on. Uh, you know uh, that little children do not process time the same way as adults. Uh, it's just five minutes. Can you sit still for five minutes? Well, to us, five minutes isn't that long. To a child, to a toddler, five minutes is an eternity. And so they, they think they've sat still for five minutes. And it's been five seconds. And then they start fidgety. 
And then they start acting as children do, which then makes that five minutes in eternity for you as an adult, right? We know how this works. And so we know how subjective time can be. The point here is that to God, to God, our whole life is nothing. It's a blink of an eye. But in the same way that, that seconds go by so quickly for us, God, those, those seconds, those moments are eternally present to God. God exists, I think, with every single moment of time as an eternal present moment to him. I think that's probably how things are, but I don't know what that's like. A thousand years are like nothing. It's like a watch in the night. It's like, a, it's like watching a movie. That's how quick it is to God. A thousand years. Think about all the things that happened in human history from the year 1000 A.D. until today. Think about all those events, all those people who lived. To God, it was just like from midnight to 3 a.m. It just went by like that that begins to put your own life in perspective. Your life might seem really long to you. It might seem really short to you. But God's perspective on your life, including all of its troubles, which is the point of this psalm, is very, very different from your own. You sweep people away in sleep. This is difficult, actually. This verse is difficult. Uh, scholars aren't quite sure exactly what the force of it is. It might not be you sweep people away in the sleep of death, although that does connect to the previous verse. It may more be like our lifespan is like sleep, that is, it comes on quickly and it's over quickly. Just like grass. The grass, in the next, the next image is the grass comes up and then it's gone. They're like new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up, by, but by evening it is dry and withered. Your life is like sleep. It's over so quickly. Your life is like grass. It springs up and then it's gone so quickly. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation, verse 7. If your life is really this short... Why must it be lived under the anger of God? That's the question. God, why is it that if to you my life is just a blink of the eye, why indignation? Why anger? Why wrath? Well, verse 8 gives a lens. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. In other words, our life is short and we are sinners and God knows us. God knows all about our, not just our errors and mistakes, God knows all about our wickedness. He knows all about the evil things that we do. He knows all about the secret thoughts of our minds and hearts. He knows us thoroughly. Because of that, verse 9, all our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures. Yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow, for they quickly pass and we fly away. Now, something that's very important to say is that this is a perspective on life. This is not um, 
everything the book of Psalms itself will say about life. Okay? This is not everything the Bible has to say about life, but this is one perspective on life. And that perspective, which a lot of you can share or at least resonate with for certain times in your life, is that there can be an awful lot of suffering in this world. There can be an awful lot of heartache in this world. And so sometimes it just seems like, Lord, I've got 70 or 80 years on this planet. Maybe a little bit longer, maybe, maybe a little bit less. To God, it, it's all a blink of an eye anyway. Whether, it, whether it's you know, one day or, or 110 years, in God's perspective, it makes functionally no difference at all. But Lord, as I'm, as I'm living my life, why? Why are the best of my years still years that are characterized by suffering? Why are the best of my years characterized by unhappiness? Why indignation? Why wrath? Why suffering? Why pain? I mean, what does it matter to you? My life is so short. Can it at least be enjoyable? Can it at least be fun? Can I at least be happy? Lord, it's going to be no time at all, just a blink of your eye, and, and, and I'm returned to dust and fly away. It's gone. Lord, why do you treat people like this? If only we knew the power of your anger, your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. That's one of the biblical answers. One of the biblical answers is... God's wrath is calibrated to his greatness. And the reason we don't take sin seriously is that we don't have a high enough view of God. We simply do not understand how great and awesome and high and holy God is. We don't understand what we actually deserve. I mean, one of the most amazing things uh, in life is, is this uh, reality that's called uh, common grace. God does not treat us as our sins deserve. There is saving grace where God in Christ provides for eternal redemption uh, through Jesus, uh, you know, paying the penalty for our sins through the resurrection. There's also common grace. There are people who hate God passionately. And God still causes the sun to rise on them. God still gives the blessing, them the blessings of food. God, God still allows their farmers, he still allows their crops to grow. I'm not sure if you've ever noticed this. But, but if you're driving through farm country, which is, which is sadly and rapidly disappearing into suburbia every time you turn around, you know, but, if, but if you drive into farm country, or to be more environmentally correct, you, you bike out into farm country, or whatever. So you're going out... You notice that you can't sort of just sort of go around and go, oh, that looks like a bumper crop of corn. I bet that guy's a Christian. You know? Oh, and then right across the road, oh, look at, look at the drought. That guy must be pretty wicked. Like, it doesn't work that way, right? You know, God, the rain falls on the righteous and the wicked. 
The sun rises on the righteous and the wicked. The crops grow for the righteous and the wicked. That's the illustration Jesus uses in the Sermon on the Mount. So God in common grace blesses and blesses and blesses and blesses. We are actually so out of tune with God's character and justice that we think that everyone is owed those blessings. So when those blessings are withheld, we actually feel that we've been, that we've been abused. That God hasn't, been ju- he hasn't treated us fairly. And the reality is God isn't treating anyone fairly. Because he's treating everyone better than they deserve. We simply don't understand who God is. That's the problem. And because we don't understand who God is, we don't understand who we are. We we have all of these demands, all these things that we think God owes us. We simply don't recognize that the wrath of God is as great as the fear that is his due. So, what do we need? We need to have God teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. This is the requirement. You need to ask God to help you understand your lifespan. You need to ask God. God, because God has an eternal perspective. We don't. That's our problem. We're so submerged in our own time that it blinkers us. And this is one of the reasons that, um, my judgment, this is one of the reasons that reading is so vital. Particularly, not just reading books that have recently come off the printing press. Our every single age, every single culture has their own blind spots that you will never see when you are part of that culture. The only way to see it is to read perspectives from other cultures and other times. It's the only way you'll see it. Lord, you have an eternal perspective. You are the one who can teach us what's valuable now. Because you're not going to get it from the media. So much of our society is now designed to fracture everyone's life into sort of discrete little packaged moments of stimuli. So that that all I'm doing is I'm just spending seconds on whatever it is that I'm distracting myself with. Day after day after day. And so your, your, your life just sort of ends. I mean, we're raising a generation whose life is going to end after 70 or 80 years. And, and all it's going to be is this, this enormous waste of fractured time spent on insipidly useful, useless, trivial things. Was a number of years ago, the book uh, you know, Amusing Ourselves to Death was written. Wouldn't have been so busy amusing ourselves to death, we might have read it and profited from it. But we are. We are distracting ourselves to death. No, no, you're, you're, you're not going to find wisdom for living life properly on Facebook. You're not. It's not there. You're not going to find li- instructions for living life properly on Twitter. You're not. It's just not there. Lord, you know you are perfectly wise and eternal with an eternal perspective. Teach me to number my days. And this is one of those things about humility. It's coming along and saying, God, I don't know how to do this right. I don't know how to live my life. 
I don't know what, how to prioritize my time. I mean, if you think about it, it's, it's an amazing social... Everything's a social experiment. Everything. Right? Like, let's say you live to be 70. Is the best way of living a life to 70 spending one-third of that time in school? I don't know. Do you? Like, like it, it, do we know that that's the optimum time of ending? Like, do we know that, that you know, you... you, you, you know, for, and this is... Not for everyone, I realize, but you, you, you graduate high school. Well, is graduating high school, is that the right time to move into the workforce, or should you get more education? Must everyone get four more years of education? Or six more years? Or ten more years? Why don't we just decide that everyone needs to be educated until they're 40? Like, like who knows? I don't know. Is 22 the best time to stop getting for, uh, formal education? Who has any idea? When do you move into the workforce? When do you get your first job? Who? I have no idea. How do you balance saving for retirement and, and spending your money? Who knows? We're just guessing. We're all fumbling forward. And so, you know, at some level, you just want to say, God, I don't know what I'm doing. Life, I'm in over my head. Like, maybe if I could live it once, and then you gave me four more shots at it, I could come through. But, like, this is like, you know, there's no dress rehearsal, and I don't know what I'm doing. So, Lord, you do. Give me the humility to submit to your teaching. Teach me to number our days. Teach us to number our days. Why? That we may be deeply wise. A heart of wisdom, that is, or, or literally a wise heart. So we may have a wise heart. So that in the core of who we are, we process life God's way. That's what we desire. That's what we want. Lord, I can't have this unless you give it to me. Teach me to number our days and to prioritize. Earlier this week, the Toronto Maple Leafs, Game 7, the Boston Bruins. My understanding is the Leafs were winning 4-3 at the End of the second period. That's, that sounds good. Probably most people who are Maple Leaf fans would have taken a 4-3 lead and been quite happy. My understanding is that Boston scored, tied the game 4-4. That's, that's not overly tragic. And then my understanding is that Boston scored again. And again. And then just one more time, which was utterly unnecessary. Uh, but the, the final score was 7-4. Now, there are, there are reasons. I, I can talk with them in a minute if you want. You might almost be able to think that that's some sort of horrific tragedy if it wasn't for the fact that in the same city earlier that week, someone got into a van and drove down a street and intentionally killed multiple pedestrians, you might think that the loss of a hockey game is significant. Until you hear about the hockey team in Humboldt, Saskatchewan. 
And all of a sudden, priorities begin to clarify. Lord, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Because there's an awful lot of noise. There's an awful lot of things that our society pushes forward. This is what's important. And from an eternal perspective, it's utterly, utterly irrelevant. Now, I am not suggesting, don't hear me say this, I am not suggesting that somehow it's wrong to watch sports. I'm not saying that at all. I'm not saying that. Relaxing, fun, all sorts of things, entertaining, yes, 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 yes. In fact, I think if you actually understand sports well, uh, you can watch sports in the same way that you watch anything that's artistic. And I mean this. The people who are best at their craft in the world are eminently worth watching no matter what they're doing. And so to watch the skill and the discipline and all the things that goes into actually making a world-class athlete, of which I am one, so I know what I'm talking about, by the way, um, it really is quite an amazing thing. And you can watch it, and you can watch it, and you can, you can honestly say, you know, as, as you watch some of these athletes, you know, I am not I, it does apply for me, but applying to them, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. It's an incredible machine that God has built. It's incredible what people can do. But, but let us get our priorities straight. Our societies, I use this word intentionally, our society is idolatrous about sports. It is idolatrous about sports. And we need, as people who have an eternal perspective by God's grace, we need to be people who are radically countercultural at this point. We can enjoy sports, if that's your propensity. You can enjoy sports, but you don't organize your life around them. We are not idolaters when it comes to athletics. Now, Lord, teach me to number my days. Then this cry, relent, Lord, how long will it be? How long is this going to go on? How long will this period of suffering continue? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love that, that, that has said, that rich, uh, we can't translate it in, in one easy way because it's such a rich concept. But God is he's faithful in his covenant. He, he loves us in the covenant. He's merciful to us in the covenant. He, he's just this great covenant God. And, and what's going to satisfy us isn't you know, the Leafs winning a Stanley Cup someday. What's going to satisfy us is the covenant love of God. And what's going to satisfy you isn't, isn't making another million dollars. It's the covenant love of God. And, and if you have the covenant love of God, at some level, it doesn't matter if it's 70 or 80 years. If you have the covenant love of God, it doesn't matter if it's seven years. It doesn't matter if it's seven months. It's only the covenant love of God that can deeply satisfy the human being. That's what we've been created to experience. Lord, Help me to sink deeply into your covenant love. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us, for as many years as we have seen trouble. Those two verses correspond with verses 9 and 10. All our days, our days may come to 70 or 80 years, the best of them. 
There's this correspondence. What, what, the, what Psalmist is praying is this. Lord, okay, in this short life that I have, can you at least balance it out? Can there at least be some reciprocity? Can there be some equality? So I'm going to suffer, okay? But can I have some joy too? Can, can your unfailing love actually give me as much satisfaction as the suffering that I've experienced? Can we just balance it? Can we just do that? Bring the pans of the scales up? Yes, there's, there's, there's some indignation and wrath and suffering. I understand that we live in a fallen world. We live in a cursed world. We live in a world of sin. I get it. But you're also a God who blesses. Give us yourself and give us joy. Give us contentment. Give us happiness. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us. Let's, let's balance this out, Lord, because it seems like my whole life is plunged under wrath and into misery. As many years as I've seen trouble, can you at least give me that number of years of contentment? May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. For the future's sake, Lord, bless us for the future generation. May the favor of our Lord, of the Lord our God, rest on us. Probably better translated as beauty or splendor or something along those lines. May God's beauty rest upon us. God, let your face shine upon us. Bless us so we can not only be blessed, but so we can be a blessing to other people. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of of our hands. This is a desperate prayer for life to actually count. Lord, I just don't want to live my life in utter futility. What's the point? So I, I have this car and that house and then that car trades. I get this car and live in that house and I have this job and I get that job and I, I make this much money I spend that much money. And Lord, what does it matter eternally? So I preach sermons and then people leave. It doesn't do any good for any one of us anyway. What's the point? What are we doing, Lord. You know, we, we teach, we do all these things. God, does it matter? Is there any significance? Does it count? Or are we all just wasting our time in everything we do, ultimately? You know, the prayer is, Lord, my work is an utter waste of everyone's time unless you establish it. Unless it's established in you, we are totally wasting our time and our lives. Because actually, unless God establishes the work of our hands, our, unless God establishes our lives, our lives don't count. They produce nothing. Nothing at all. It's only when we recognize that that you can actually begin to live properly, interestingly enough. It's only when you recognize that on your own, everything you do is utterly futile and useless you can begin to live life the way it was meant to be lived. 
Because life was never meant to be lived in this little short span during the time that you're going to be here on earth. It was meant to be lived anchored in the eternity of God. In eternity past, going into eternity future. And it is only at the intersection of God's eternal past and the eternal future that God has for us. It's only at that intersection point, which we call the present, that you can find meaning if you're aware of those two things. So if my life really is a cosmic accident bursts out of meaningless chaos, moving forward into a universe in anthropic death, then whatever I do now is utterly meaningless. And I can coach myself along, and I can give myself a nice little pep talk about how, you know, really having steak for supper will make this life worthwhile. But if I actually think about it, I have to know that's a crock. No matter what I do, it's just a waste of time. But if there is eternal intention behind my existence, and if there's an eternity in which I'm going to be consciously and bodily alive in the presence of God, then what I do now not only matters, it literally matters eternally. And that's what allows us to ask God to establish the work of our hands. What we do counts, and it matters. Not because it makes our life comfortable now, but because it matters forever. And this is one of the great things about the New Testament. The New Testament prayer is not, Lord, kindly make my life here in this world balance out in terms of happiness and suffering. The New Testament prayer is, God, you promised our light and momentary sufferings are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. That's what I want and nothing less. I don't come to Christ asking for equality. I come to Christ asking for infinitely more than the suffering I'm experiencing here and now. And I recognize that I might not get it here and now. But I don't need it here and now. Because what Christ is doing is he's creating an an eternity in a new heavens and new earth, the home of righteousness, where righteousness dwells, where there is no more sorrow or suffering or crying or mourning, precisely and only because there is no more sin there. And so as we go forward, we recognize, yes, yes, this is, as the older fingers you say, this is the veil of tears. This is the valley of tears. This is not a perfect world. This is a fallen world. This is not even the best of all possible worlds. Leibniz was wrong. But this is the best way to the best of all possible worlds, and that's the one that's coming. One day we are going to experience life if our faith is in Christ in the new heavens and new earth. That is the best of all possible worlds. That's where we're going. The song that we sang. The battle is not done. It's not done yet for us. Christ has already conquered. That battle is done, which guarantees the victory in the end. The consummation. But right now, we live in a fallen world. We struggle, we suffer, there is wrath, there is judgment, there are all these things. But, as Paul promises in 1 Corinthians 15, because of the resurrection, because of the resurrection, your labor in the Lord is not in what? It is not in vain. Nothing you do in the Lord is in vain or can be in vain. Whereas everything you do that's not in the Lord is in vain and cannot be otherwise. And that's your choice. 
You'll either live your life in the Lord where nothing you do can possibly be in vain. It all matters eternally. It's all that significant. Or nothing you do matters at all. And that's life. Now, the reality is, even if you're not in Christ, everything you do matters eternally because you will be held to account for all that you've done for eternity. But there will be nothing positive. There will be nothing established, nothing firm and stable. Eternity past allows us to live in the present, moving into eternity future, which is glorious because of Christ. Brothers and sisters, we absolutely need to capture this way of understanding life if we're going to make any difference in our culture at all. Part of our enormous lack in terms of witness is that we witness just like everyone else. That is, we're just like everyone else in culture. We have the same priorities, same everything. Christians aren't people who are just supposed to be slightly different. We'd have a radically different view and way of processing all of life from an eternal perspective. C.S. Lewis rightly said, everything that is not eternal is eternally out of date. Think about that in terms of fashions of culture. Think about that in terms of fashion, clothes fashion. This shirt, this pair of pants. You know, I have owned this for 19 years. I have. I have. That's not, a, that's not a joke. You shouldn't be laughing. <laughs> and, and I'm awfully proud that I've kept my waistline trim enough to still fit in these, you know? Were they fashionable at one time? Probably not. Are they fashionable now? I have no idea. I don't care. They're still perfectly good. That is, they're still wearable. I don't know why I'd trade them in. I don't know why I'd, I'd buy something new. I just don't know why I would do that. They're still fine. Uh, I taught a lot of classes in, these, in this shirt, you know, preached a lot of sermons in these pants, and uh, still intend on doing that for another 19 years or more. Right? <laughs> you know what? You know what's funny? When you look back at pictures, the people who are the most fashionable are the ones who look the silliest later. You ever notice that? It's true. It's true. It's true. I know it's true. I take Oprah Winfrey to be about the most fashionable person of her generation. Have you ever watched Oprah, which you ought to have done at least for a few years in your life, just to learn how, what people in culture actually think? Uh, she would every once in a while, she'd, have a, she'd show a picture from her previous shows. 1980s, 1990s, and you know, we're, we're 10, 20 years later. And every single time Oprah Winfrey showed a picture, every time she showed a picture of shows a couple decades before she showed, oh, can you believe I wore that sweater? Can you believe my hair was like that? Everyone has a good laugh. Ah, oh, it's so funny. You want to say, don't you realize that 20 years from now they're going to be saying the same thing about how you look today? Like, don't you, what don't you understand about this? Whenever you sort of go for these sort of uh, ephemeral fashions, they're always gone. That's how fashion works. Whatever is not eternal is eternally out of date. I'm going to be wearing this in glory. <laughs> no, God, God comes along and he says, okay, guys, really? 
really? Like, you're going to live your life for that? For the next iteration of the iPhone? Really? For this, for that? No, no, no. I'm calling you to transcendence. I'm calling you to infinite glory. I'm calling you to eternity. Be patient now. But it's coming. It's coming. So don't get snookered by the world and live your life for the moment today. Live every moment today to its fullest, interpreted through eternity. That's how your life counts. That's what Jesus Christ has restored to us by his grace. I'm going to ask our musicians to come uh, and lead us in a closing song.